This is Queer Histories, Queer Futures, presented by Last Call, a podcast about queer resistance in New Orleans and the people behind the movement. I'm Free For All. And I'm Lane Kevin Levinson. Hey, Free. Hey, Lane. How's it going? It's all right. How about you? Uh, doing pretty good. good. Doing pretty good. Good to see you. Yeah. Um, can I start off this episode with a serious question? Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm wondering if um, there's ever been a time where you have felt at risk or if you have felt that you're um, that you've been in danger in any way because Mm. of any part of your identity. Mm. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think just walking around looking kind of like a woman is a makes me feel like I'm in danger sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, also walking around looking kind of like a woman and also kind of like a dude mm-hmm. <laughs> um, has put me in danger sometimes. Mm-hmm. I had this experience. I just remembered uh, being in Mexico City with a sweetie and we were trying to get into a club and I didn't know we were going to be going to a club so I didn't have ID on me. And we were being read everywhere as teenage boys. Like everybody thought we were teenage boys everywhere we went. And so... Um, my Spanish is really bad. Je parle français assez bien, mais uh, l'espagnol, pas de tout. Alors, uh, so then, the, we had this thing happen where uh, the people that we were with were really insistent that we should just be trying to, like, barge our way in. And the bouncers were, like, holding me back, and I was being pulled in to the club by my friends and it was like a really it felt pretty dangerous it felt like I could be I could easily be the recipient of whatever this dude's anger is about us defying him you know Yeah, that's the most recent example I can come up with. Yeah, which alludes to the fact that there's definitely more than one yeah. moment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which I think for uh, a lot of people listening, they, you all might relate to that. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, this moment in time where we are today, where, you know, Drag Race is like the most popular show on TV and Queer Eye Coming Back is like the other most popular show on TV <laughs> and all the kids in middle school are non-binary. Yeah. Um, and it's that's all real and happening and out in the mainstream. And at the same time, you can be beaten for being gay and being mm. black. Um, so... Um, thinking about the episode we're about to hear, mm-hmm. uh, it's an uplifting episode, thankfully, and it's all about um, tools and resources that one person helped to create for these types of crises. Um, and this is a story that took place 20 years 20 ago, years ago mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's all about like a crisis hotline. 
these types of hotlines are still extremely necessary and I'm sure used every single day mm -hmm. for people that feel at risk walking down the street because they are queer. Yeah. Um, but, and, this is, as we said, a really empowering story uh, about someone named Rosanna Cruz. Mm -hmm. um, what do we know about Rosanna? Rosanna is a badass warrior, um, and they have been doing all kinds of amazing racial justice and queer advocacy work in New Orleans for more than 20 years. Um, and this is actually a piece that you'll hear a little bit more about um, Rosanna's just uh, bio in the piece, but this is a piece about her early work in New Orleans, um, and it comes from an interview I did with Ro Rosanna, and I also produced this piece. Can you just say your name? Yes, my name is Rosanna Cruz. I mean, even that question is complicated, right? Like, <laughs> I'm like, uh, is that my final answer? Um, yeah, I most people know me by Rosanna Cruz mm -hmm. um, because I anglicize my name for English speakers, mm -hmm. and also lots of people try to not anglicize my name and fail miserably. <laughs> and so, um, to Spanish speakers, I will introduce myself as Rosana, and more and more, in terms of gender, I'm going by RC. RC. I grew up in Miami. Um, I was there from the time I was seven months old until I was the day I turned 18 um, and left for college. Now in my spiritual life and work, I recognize like the hand of so many ancestors like on my back, you know, kind of metaphorically. Um, and just uh, the place that I, places that I have come from are a big part of why I've done the work that I've done. So um, my parents are both Cuban immigrants. Um, they came to the U.S. Uh, from the eastern province of Cuba in 1967, which is kind of late. Um, so they weren't part of the like kind of wealthier elite first wave that came in, you know, 59. Um, and in those early years of the revolution, they actually like lived in Cuba and my brother was born in Cuba. And so like our story, my family's story is a little bit off the track of what people think of as like kind of typical Cuban stories from the first wave. And also like nothing like Scarface, surprise, surprise, <laughs> like, you know, it's like nothing like the second wave, which is considered the Marielle. Right. And so like my parents, um, left their families behind um, and so I still have a lot of family in Cuba and I went um, in 1979 I want to say so I was little and I went to Cuba at a time when most people weren't going like when it was still really difficult and it, it, the first trips for Cuban exiles to go back to Cuba had opened up and so a huge part of like how I became politicized and how I like came to where I am like today in terms of my not just my work but like my ideology and my like spiritual and political commitments are like through my family right
one of my teachers like was like, hey, I'm thinking about starting an Amnesty International chapter and it seems like something you would be super into. And I was like, God, yes, please. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I, I was the head of the club in high school and then I, all through college, um, I founded the, the chapter at my college and like tried to struggle through with that. And then I applied for a fellowship with the Southern Regional Office right out of college and I didn't get it. And I was like, I don't care, I'm moving to Atlanta anyway. And I'll figure out a way to work with that office because they're doing really amazing stuff. And Atlanta is like so important as a city in this country's history. And like, I was really just in college, like learning about the racial history of this country, you know, which is something that in Miami you don't really get. Um, and certainly not at that time. I think that my race analysis and like just growing up in Miami, it's such a head trip. Miami is such an ahistorical city. I, I feel like spiritually I was like very linked to my family's history. And then to be in this city that was so much about like looking forward and just feels like full of amnesia and like very image focused and very like, concerned with glamour you know the word we used to use was plastic right it's very plastic um and so uh yeah my college experience really informed like my desire to um have a place in this like larger human rights movement um but with a real strong like sense of like committing to racial justice and liberation for people of color. Moving to New Orleans was like actually, and Atlanta to a certain degree too, was like a big part of the attraction was just like a place that has a living history. But so when you, when you moved here, you were working for an Amnesty International campaign? I wasn't, I, I had, I had finished. You had finished. So okay. I, I had worked for Amnesty from uh, January of 97 until August. Oh, okay. And then I kind of like had a like kind of lost, not lost, actually very found three month period where I was just like working service industry and also dancing. And okay. um, I went and um, decided to move. That's when I like did the interview. Like also my relationship that I was in in Atlanta ended. Mm -hmm. And so I went and um, I was like, things in Atlanta are kind of ending. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and things in New Orleans, like I was really invested in this place and like all of the relationships that I had formed here over the period of my campaign work were really important to me and I just felt so drawn to the city I like couldn't stay away mm -hmm. and so that's when I decided to move um, was fall of 97. Mm -hmm. I heard about the hate crimes project in Mimi Jalanak yeah mm -hmm. yeah she was the founder like she and Martha Cagle and some other folks who were, they were on the board of the community center. And at that point, um, I don't think the community center had ever had full-time paid staff mm -hmm. before that. The Hate Crimes Project got state funding through VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act. Basically, that little bit of money, it might have been like, 
I don't know, $60,000 a year or something Mm -hmm. tiny. Um, If that like paid for the salary and the operations. It was me full time and then Janelle, um, who was the volunteer coordinator, was part time staff. And then really the way that the community center kept the doors open was through volunteers, right? Volunteers ran all of the programming, like kept the clubs going, like, you know, there was like a 30 or 40 something club, there was a youth group, there was a like coming out group. You know, there were tons of people who would come in and be the person at the desk. That was how the center was like kept open is there was somebody who could schedule the volunteers and make sure that there was a volunteer person there staffing the hotline and then keeping the doors open during regular business hours or at that time I think we we were open from like noon until 7 p.m. every day. I mean also people donated tons of other stuff besides their time, right? Like, so it was like a staff of about 40 volunteers. And then there was the building that we were in, which was owned by um, Nikki and Betty, who were elders in the community who lived halftime um, on Decatur Street in the French Quarter and halftime in, um, in Santa Fe. And so they owned the building that the the center was in and so they gave us like a massive deal maybe they totally donated the rent or they gave us very very low rent all of the volunteers went through crisis intervention training so the hotline functioned basically like a way to connect people with resources so it was to make sure that people when they first experienced or when they were coming to terms and looking for help around experiencing hate violence that they uh, that they would have a place to call that was like loving and welcoming, right? And like didn't discriminate against them based on any of those protected identities. The phone would ring really randomly, and um, we never knew what it was going to be. And I think that one of the things that I learned early on was like, hey, violence is just one of many issues that people in all these different communities are experiencing and need help with, right? And so a lot of what it felt like in terms of like staffing, not just the hotline, but the community center was like, we're living in a really rough time and place, right? And like, people need help. You know, there were a lot of young people, right, who needed a place to go, a place to sleep. Um, We got calls, we got a lot of calls about intimate partner violence, um, right, which was different and complicated and not something that we're super equipped to address. Um, And then we, like, (laughs) it was really interesting when we would do volunteer trainings, right, or like um, onboard new volunteers, just the level of trauma that, Um, each of us were bringing to the work, right, that motivated us to to help other people in the first place, right? In so many ways, like a lot of us were looking for our own healing. Mm -hmm. The Hate Crimes Project was a 24-hour line, so from 12 to 7, the volunteers answered the phone, but 
the rest of the time Janelle and I were trading the phone and mm-hmm. you know and then some volunteers would sign up for overnight shifts but you know it was like a 24-hour hotline so like we got all kinds of calls mm-hmm. um, and so that part just really highlighted to me like the need in all of these different LGBTQ communities is way bigger than what we can handle and we can do our best and like reach out and like loving ways to people but we'll we nine times out of ten what I felt like and this is true for so many different organizations that I worked for I felt like I was telling people how and why I couldn't help them Mm. you know and so like that's been that's I don't know if there's other organizers out there who have this experience but like man that's a that's a hazing process that people go through you know their early movement heartbreaks right of being like actually what this person needs I don't have a way to access it for them Mm. right Um, the volunteers kept the hotline for the hate crimes project 24 7 and it wasn't exclusive like unlike a lot of AVP anti-violence projects around the country like the hate crimes project here was for every protected community. So it wasn't exclusive to LGBTQ identified folks. So we did outreach to the Muslim community. We did work in like communities of color that weren't LGBTQ identified. And so uh, in that respect, it was really cool to then go to the national coalition of anti-violence project gatherings and people be like, wait, what? What are you, 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 what are you doing? Um, because it wasn't the norm at that time, you know? And so just thinking about um, the fact that it was this ragtag, like tiny underfunded project that then birth is like kind of amazing, like perspective. Um, it's like a big deal to me, you know, like that I got to be part of that. Um, and then the really intense and ugly demise of it being like so linked to 9-11 right in this moment where like the people who were involved in the leadership of the community center were really uh like i feel like we were torn there was this group of us that was like yes we were like doing the anti-racism training and we're like you know like really thinking about like inclusion and what does it look like to be this like multiracial like inclusive space that belongs to everybody and then there's like this weird like already there had been kind of this funky leadership issue like you know the vestiges of that like um uptown boys just want to have fun kind of network which is like moneyed white gay men um like they were like we just you know like we're just not really like we just want a place for the cute young boys to go so if they get kicked out of their house and we're not really thinking about like really want to talk about racism and so like Mona's you know um, the old location was firebombed after 9-11 a lot of people don't know that they experienced hate violence and like it was like a ugly kind of messed up moment that like 
you know, folks at the community center and and some folks in the leadership were really like, this is a time for us to come together and be patriotic and like, you know, patriotism is for gay people too. And like, you know, this like really like America first kind of analysis, right? That it was time for us to stop like being so different and extra and like get in line and be like united under the flag and like the rest of us were like no (laughs) like that's not who we've been these last like three years why would we do that now especially when parts of our community are being targeted in a totally different way and just like just people didn't make that it didn't feel like relevant to them right So the Hate Crimes Project stopped getting funding because, you know, like it wasn't, VAWA wasn't a priority anymore and like that money didn't, didn't get replenished to the Hate Crimes Project and then things kind of started like dissipating from there. And I left in January of 2002. It was pretty soon after 9-11, January, February. I feel like we're constantly, you know, as organizers coming to a gunfight with like a spoon. Yeah. <laughs> just like or a hug. Right. <laughs> In some cases, yeah. Um, and also like it's a testament to like our incredible power and magic that we win. Mm-hmm. Right? And that our people survive and that we are still here mm-hmm. and that we have legacies and elders and these next generations, right? Like, that's huge. Rosanna Cruz has been on the front lines of racial justice and human rights efforts on the local and national scene for more than 20 years. She's held senior leadership positions in two of the most effective grassroots-led organizations in New Orleans, Safe Streets slash Strong Communities, and the voice of the ex-offender, V-O-T-E vote. After the levees burst in 2005, Rosanna was a field coordinator at the National Immigration Law Center, helping to establish the New Orleans Worker Center for Racial Justice. She most recently has worked for Race Forward, she is currently on a heavily earned sabbatical. Congratulations, Rosanna. Woo. And she lives in New Orleans, where she is raising a brilliant kid. Awesome. And again, that was produced by you, right? Mm-hmm. Nice. What do we do now? What do we do with ourselves? We just pick up the pieces and move on, Lane. <laughs> I don't want to pick up the pieces. I want to flail. Okay. <laughs> I support you in that. I support you. <laughs> this mm. is this is the last episode of season two. But we are so, so, so thankful for all of you for coming back every week and listening and um, for sharing with your friends and hopefully um, learning and enjoying these pieces. Yeah. And as you can tell from all of... You know, the people that we mentioned at the beginning and end of each episode, there are so many people that 
have made and continue to make this project possible. It's a living, breathing, active force. And I know that as someone that's involved, I still can't wait to see um, what Last Call and Queer Histories, Queer Futures does next, because whatever whatever we do, it's it's gonna it's gonna be um, amazing, and it's it's gonna be something we haven't done before. Every year, there's a new iteration that brings people in a different way, whether it's in like this digital space, this podcast space, physical events, maybe a physical bar one day. Just saying, yeah. Space. Uh, <laughs> space is the final frontier. Space is the final frontier. <laughs> uh, we must claim land. <laughs> um, no, but it's. I know that it's been an honor to be a part of this project and to host this second season with you, Free. Thank you for bringing me on oh, and yeah. letting me share this, this role with you. It has been my honor and privilege. I've learned so much through the process, and I feel so, so... Uh, I feel so full. Me too. Thank you. Thank you. This project was created in partnership with the New Orleans LGBT Center and Alternate Roots through an Alternate Roots Partners in Action grant and through a network of ensemble theaters Net 10 Exchange Grant. Additional funding from the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Foundation Last Call is fiscally sponsored by the National Performance Network. Thank you all for listening and stay in touch. Mm-hmm. Um, you can always go to the Last Call website, find us on social media. Um, we will write back to you, you know? And um, until next time, stay gay. Stay gay.